The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission. At IJM, we know where people are enslaved and we have a plan to rescue them, but we need your help. If you would, please go to IJM.org and find out ways that you can give and advocate on behalf of those we seek to serve. Again, that's IJM.org. Thank you. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you today as we have an important and inspiring conversation with Elena Hung. Elena is the co-founder of an organization called Little Lobbyists. This organization advocates and lobbies for kids with medical needs and disabilities. And this is a really important issue to Elena because she has a daughter named Ziomara who has some complex medical needs and she has learned a lot through caring for her. And we will talk about that whole story. Elena is an immigration lawyer and she has been since 2006. And her bio, she has the funniest part of her bio that I'm just going to read to you exactly as she wrote it. It says, quote, she had lots of hobbies before becoming a mom, like painting, pottery, hoop dancing, traveling, and yoga. Now she is usually sleepy and hungry. I thought that was really funny. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, you hearing the conversation that I got to have with her for a couple of reasons. First, I just did not know what it was like to have a child with complex medical needs. And so we hear about both the joy of being Ziomara's mom, as well as some of the challenges that they face as a family. And in addition, we talk about what it means to actually be a part of the political system and actually help enact change. So it's a fascinating conversation. And with that, I leave you to listen to it. Here is Elena Hung. I want to get to little lobbyists. We'll we'll get there in a minute. And folks just heard mm-hmm. in the introduction, just kind of generally what that's about. But mm-hmm. I, I'm curious before we get to that and what seemed to be a pretty substantial turning point in your life. I'm curious what your life career looked like before 2017. Like what what was going on in your world? So before 2017, I was leading, I guess, a pretty normal, uneventful life. Um, <laughs> I was doing all the things I was, you know, had planned to do and was pretty happy. I'd gotten married. I had two kids. I, um, you know, was just living a very normal life, I guess. <laughs> Were you politically involved? I was not politically involved at all. You know, I was always politically aware. I, you know, was well read. I read the news. I was up to date living in the D.C. area. You know, I, you know, had a lot of friends who were uh, very politically involved. I myself was not. Um, uh, My type of activism was mostly donating money to certain candidates. (laughs) Right, right. Not Not to say that's not totally valid and great, but that's not. Can you share a little bit of of the story of your daughters? Because that is, and especially Ziomara, because that's just so pertinent to to what ends up up being. Mm -hmm. So Ziomara was born with a number of medical issues. Um, we had some sense of what they might be when I was pregnant, but we had no idea to what extent. Um, so before that, I'll say that Ziomara is a really happy child. She is fun. She's yeah. about to turn five, which 
blows me away. Um, she's yeah, about to yeah. start kindergarten in the fall, which I am not at all prepared for. Um, I cried. I cried deep, deep, yeah. ugly cry when they walk yes. away into kindergarten. It's, it's I am going <laughs> to stock up on tissues come this fall. But, you know, she's oh. doing so oh, it's great. Rough, yeah. <laughs> she's really, she's kind. Right. She's smart. She's funny. She's clever. She's a little bit naughty. And really the greatest joy of my life. Um, <laughs> so I, I wanted to right. share that about Diamara first. Um, the first yeah. few months of her life were a bit difficult, to say the least. Uh, she spent the first five months of her life in the neonatal intensive unit. Uh, she was diagnosed with a number of medical conditions affecting her airway, lungs, heart, and kidneys. Uh, she uses a tracheostomy to breathe and a ventilator for additional respiratory support. And she also relies on a feeding tube for all of her nutrition. Uh, so that's sort of a sense of what her medical needs look like. And she participates in weekly therapies to help her walk and talk and eat. Um, but really, I'm thrilled to say that she's thriving today. Is she able to, um, between like feeding and breathing and all of the the issues that she is working through and so like bravely traversing, is she able to like play, do five-year-old stuff? Yes, absolutely. She's playing. She wrestles with her big brother. She, you know, we take her everywhere. Um, we go as a family. We go to the library. We go to the playground um uh, we've gone on many vacations so you know in many ways she's she's a kid she's an almost five-year-old kid and and just having the time of her life yeah i love the, um the pictures that you post of her and i mean even there's like a recent one where she's got like these yes. white sunglasses on <laughs> like this kid is this kid is fiery <laughs> <laughs> yes, she has sweet personality. And what's her name mean? I mean, or does it? Is it just like a family name? Ziomara feels like a strong name. It's a big name. Ziomara means ready for battle. Uh, and so we had picked up the name. We weren't sure what was going to happen immediately after her birth. Uh, so she was born and I got to hold her immediately and kiss her. And then 15 minutes later, she was rushed to the NICU where she was placed on a hundred percent supplemental oxygen support. And the cardiologist came in and examined her and recommended that we transfer her to the children's hospital uh, sooner rather than later. And so she was going to get discharged before I was. And I felt like I needed to arm her with a name. Wow. Uh, so I named her Ziamara and sent her on her way with her daddy. I mean, that that is a kind of scary crazy moment that no one mm -hmm. ever wants but what what a time that must have been for mm -hmm. for you all and the decisions that you had to make and you're sitting there recovering i mean already going through the just the normal run-of-the-mill trauma of childbirth right and so i had to you know i wanted to get discharged so i could join her and i remember like right. taking a quick shower making myself look as presentable and healthy as possible <laughs> <laughs> just lying to doctors yeah feel great 100 i'm like no I'm, I'm good to go send me on my way which they did you know they appreciated yeah. um you know yeah. how much i wanted to be with her obviously <laughs> yeah of course so what was, as a parent, and I, I will say and preface, like a lot of people listening to the mm -hmm. show may have no kids or young kids. Um, and so I think just trying to understand f before we get into the the policy aspect of all of, all of what she inspired in you, I'm curious, how did it, I don't know if change your expectations, but how did it, how did it differ caring for her 
versus what you thought it would be like to parent a child? Uh, yeah, so I have an older son who's two years older than Ziamara. Yeah. So I I was not a new right. mom. <laughs> I was, I mean, I'm still learning. I think we're all learning. I think uh, right. parenting done right is the hardest right. job in the world. But parenting a disabled child is different. Um, And what I've come to learn is that the disability part is not the hard part. Um, It's not the diagnosis. It's actually the barriers to inclusion uh, that's hard. And what I mean by that is that parenting a child with Yamara who has significant medical needs uh, that by itself, you know, we were trained to do that. We had a great team at the hospital who helped us through that. It's actually the lack of support overall that has made this a challenge. You know, taking Zumara out in public where half the places we go are not accessible, for example. You know, we can't go to a restaurant because they don't have a ramp for her wheelchair. Oh. That's the hard part. Um, you know, Zumara, unlike her big brother, right. needs skilled nursing, someone who's trained in her medical needs to be with her at all times. You know, I can't just drop her off at the daycare like I did with her brother. So the lack of support, um, the difficulty in finding reliable nursing care, that's the hard part in the parenting. Yeah. I, I, I And so mm-hmm. I would imagine, and pardon me mm-hmm. if I'm oversimplifying this, but I, I'm curious how mm-hmm. people that aren't of means or don't have community, mm-hmm. how do people do this? That is a great question. And I, I'm still trying to figure out, I'm trying to figure out how I'm doing it. I mean, I <laughs> five years out, I feel like right. I'm still in survival mode, to be completely honest. Right now, yeah. Um, as great as she's doing now, you know, we still have a long road ahead of us. Um But to your question, I am vividly aware of my privilege um, and the luxury that I have had in caring for Ziomara. You know, I own my own practice, so I have flexibility in my work schedule, which meant that I was able to be at her bedside in the hospital. I was there next to her. I brought my laptop. I brought my cell phone in to call my clients, you know, work in between. But I was able to be at the hospital for five months, for 169 days straight. And that is an immense luxury. I had the flexibility to, you know, make the calls and attend the meetings to advocate for her care. I have the education and background to be able to do that. Um, And I was vividly aware of that throughout her hospital stay. And I also knew that people treated us better because of that. You know, it was extremely unfair, you know, but they knew that um, our background, my husband and I are both attorneys. And I know that we got significant better treatment and care because of it. Um, So in a way, you know, I I, I don't know how others do it. I know that there were other babies in the NICU where their parents were working and weren't able to be there the way that I was. Um, And I, you know, definitely felt for those families. I know how to call and escalate uh, a, a conversation. I know how to do all of those things, and that's because of my own privilege. And in many ways, that's what 
that's what has informed my advocacy. I feel a responsibility to use this privilege to help others. Yeah, I mean, it is really unbelievable to hear you say that. But then even with what would seem like all of the resources mm -hmm. you would need to be able to serve your daughter well, even with everything, you still, there's still not ramps at, at appropriate locations and there's still mm -hmm. not the appropriate care that sh should or could be available to serve her well. I mean, it's still like there is no perfect, I mean, it's just, there's a long way to go no matter where you are on the spectrum of, of means or education. There just seems to be just a, a fundamental miss here as it pertains to the children with with any kind of need. Yes, absolutely. I I don't this you know, this system, this world is not designed for disabled children, disabled people in general. And so navigating the system is extremely difficult hmm. uh and lonely. <laughs> It's very lonely. Why is it lonely? You know, I think we're there's so much that's not known. Um and people just don't know how to react. Um, the needs that Zumar has, the complex medical needs, they might be in some ways unique to her, but they're definitely not unique, period. <laughs> um, and so I think it's lack of visibility. Right. It's lack of, um, you know, just lack of knowledge on, on uh in so many ways, I think a lot of what I try to do in the advocacy is the visibility piece, um, is to show, look, here's a child with complex medical needs who uses a trach to breathe and a feeding tube to eat. And she's just a kid, you know, we don't have to be afraid of her. <laughs> we don't have to, you know, fear the unknown. There are ways to understand and support, uh, what she needs. Right. So. I think the the loneliness is the lack of visibility and understanding. Yeah. Well, and to that end, we enter mm -hmm. Little Lobbyists, this organization that that you have you have co-founded. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about the, the the kind of the genesis story of that and what what the work is that you do? Sure. So I will start by saying that it kind <laughs> yeah, of yeah. just happened by accident. Um, so the beginning is really uh, after the election, after election of 2016, and specifically after inauguration, I think like so many in the country, we were in shock um, and trying to figure out what this transition meant. And right off the bat, we knew that healthcare, access to healthcare was um, an issue that we had to pay close attention to. Um, so many families like mine, families with children with complex medical needs, we were watching the news early that year and in May, May 4th to be exact, we all remember the day, May 4th, the House of Representatives voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And a lot of activists across the country had been speaking up, you know, so it wasn't like that was the moment for everybody else. It was a moment for us. Uh, but there were a lot of people who were out protesting, rallying um, and speaking up on, on saving the ACA. Ooh, families like mine, it was still cold and flu season. So we were we were at home watching. Right. Uh, but that moment really shifted um, and made everything real. And what that meant is the Affordable Care Act. Now we know, we readily 
speak about how the ACA is not perfect, right? It's not perfect law. But what it has meant for so mm-hmm. many of our families, um, it has given our kids, you know, a an opportunity to survive and thrive. And there are three pieces of the ACA that has meant the world to our kids and to our families. And that's protection right. for pre-existing conditions. You know, by definition, all of our children have pre-existing conditions. Uh, they're all born with or later acquire some form of complex medical need. Um, second is the ban on the lifetime limits. And what that is, is right. that before the ACA, many insurance plans had a cap on a dollar amount, a cap on the dollar amount of the care that you received. And for a lot of our children, we surpassed that cap in a short amount of time. So for example, Zyamara's time in the hospital, she spent five months in the NICU and her bills from that time, from five months, was about $3 million. No way. Yes, $3 million. Um, I mean, and so you've already hit what most people will spend in their lifetime. In a lifetime, right. And or if not many lifetimes, yeah. Right. And that's the case for so many children who spend time in the NICU. For anyone who has ex- ex- um, extended hospitalizations or have, you know, chronic illnesses that require lifelong care, they're going to likely meet that cap. Uh, sooner rather than later. So the ban on that cap um, is really, you know, (laughs) makes all the difference in the world for our kids. Yes, yes, yeah. And the third, third point to the ACA real quick is the essential health benefits, which covers a lot of the things that our kids need, like hospitalizations, emergency care, prescription drugs, and so on. So these were all things that we saw that were threatened with the repeal of the ACA. We, my friends and I were like, well, we need to do something. I don't know what, <laughs> we don't know what, but we need to do something, you know? And I, I live in Maryland. I have two yeah. democratic senators who are supporters of the ACA. You know, I call them, they're like, yes, we're on it. It didn't feel like it was enough for, for me. Uh, we, we showed up, we attended rallies. We, we, you know, so I got a, f- a friend of mine who also lives in Maryland. We got together with a third friend and just started brainstorming. We're like, what can we do? Um, and we thought maybe we should show up. Maybe we can, you know, bring our kids. People don't understand what is at stake. And it came from a very pure place. It really came from like, nobody knows what it's like to have a medically complex child unless you have a medically complex child. Uh, so you don't really know what is at stake and you don't know what is possible. Um, with access to healthcare. So we talked some more and basically the idea that we would show up on the hill, we would bring our children, uh, we would collect stories from our friends across the country, those who wanted to share their stories, and we were going to hand deliver it to their senators. And that was, that was it. it, you know, we had no experience in this. <laughs> um, it seemed like a good idea. We were a 30 minute train ride from Capitol Hill. And it felt like, you know, we could do something. So, so that's what we did. Uh, the co-founder, Michelle, and I, she looked at her work calendar. She said, okay, I can go on Tuesday. So we picked a random day and 
we collected stories that previous week and we showed up on that Tuesday. We and, showed up on June 20th. I mean, was somebody, did you talk to anybody? <laughs> did, were they like, I, can you just show up and start lobbying? Like, how do you do it? Do you have to get like a, a registration to be a lobbyist? How does it work? <laughs> yeah, apparently you can. You, uh, so we, we thought, okay, we're going to show up. We're gonna, let's, let's go big, right? Let's, let's do this. Let's really, really do this. So we mm-hmm. called and got some, um, meetings we called our senator in maryland we called senator van hollen and we got in a meeting with him and we went through the list and for the people who submitted their stories we had them call their senators and say hey uh my friend michelle and elena are in dc and they want to meet with you on my behalf we we call the media we said well if we're going to do this let's try to get some attention on it right what's the Mm -hmm. point if no one knows (laughs) uh so we called washington post and they surprisingly said yes and so they came with us uh we called vox uh sarah cliff who was then the healthcare reporter who we had followed uh so she came with us so we got some press that first day um we were sharing this all over social media and we asked people to help amplify and yeah you you can you can just show up on capitol hill you can just walk into your senator's office and say hey i am here is there someone that i can speak to about health care so that's what we did we had stories with us you know so we said we're here on behalf of so and so who is a constituent of yours and they asked us to come in and meet with you and you know we had our children with us so we could say you know you know, little Billy doesn't exactly have the same diagnosis, but it has many similarities to Xiomara. Uh, make that connection that way. So we were able to speak to some people without an appointment that way. And we were able to speak to some where we were able to get appointments. So it was it was a wild day. It was wild. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. There was so much we didn't know, like just in terms of security, huh. for example. You know, my daughter has a emergency medical bag that goes everywhere she goes and so we were like can we bring this in can we you know there's sharp scissors in this can i bring sharp scissors into capitol hill um right no that's a great question so for that what we did we called another organization we call family voices and we we googled them we're like what's another family group that's working on these issues and that they came up i reached out to them they replied right away and they had a um policy expert slash lobbyist that was willing to join us on the first day so she was absolutely wonderful uh, but she guided us through everything she's like this is what you need to know to get through security here's wow. this is where all the accessible entrances are you know we had children in wheelchairs and medical strollers so she guided us through that you know some of the logistic stuff right uh, here's where the yeah but also the things mm-hmm. you think about I mean I never right. never considered it right because I just I've mm-hmm. I've lobbied before and you just Right. Walk into the big entrance and you do your thing. But the things you have to consider in order t- for your daughter to have access is pretty remarkable. But anyhow, so y- there you found access. Yeah, we found access. We we found out where the snacks were. Very important for hungry children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we important found out hungry adults. It's a great hungry <laughs> adults. Yeah. Yes, we <laughs> found you know the spaces where we could have our children uh, take a break and relax. And so you know we had that support from Family Voices. And about one o'clock in the afternoon, I remember very vividly, we had all of these stories uh, that we were dropping off and we still had many more to go. And as we were checking our emails, 
many more stories were coming in. We were walking into offices where they said to us, oh, you know, we would love to chat with you. There's no one who's available today, but if you come back tomorrow, uh, I think our healthcare staffer could, could meet with you. Um, and as we were having each different meeting, we were learning more and more how to tighten our message, how to really, you know, be a bit more effective. So at about one o'clock, I turned to Michelle and I said, there's so much more to do. And we could, we, you know, we're learning to be better at this. So there's so much more that we could be doing. And, and so we came back the next day <laughs> and we came back the day after that. I think, no, we took a day off and we came back the day after that. And that week, as I recall, um, the healthcare bill, the Senate healthcare bill was not released yet. It was not made public. So it was being yeah. drafted behind closed doors. So the message really was, you know, show us the bill. We want to see the bill. If it's anything like the house bill, it's going to be terrible for our families and we want to talk about it. Uh, so that first week was really the message. The most we could do is show us the bill and we we're very concerned. So the next week the bill was released and to no one's surprise, it was horrible for our families. So we had to hmm. come back then and say, look, we want to talk about the bill. This is not good. It's, it's, you know, it's devastating to families like ours and here's why. So we kept coming back. And by that second week we had, you know, we had, um, gotten our own Facebook group and a Twitter account. Um, we had named ourselves at that point. So Sarah Cliff, who came with us that very first day, she wrote an article about us that was published and sh her title was The Littlest Lobbyist and she focused on one of her kids. <laughs> and we spent, I think, like two seconds of thought on it. Like they kept asking us, what group are you with or what group are you with? And Michelle and I were like, no group, it's just us. It's Michelle and Elena. It's Elena and Michelle, you know? Yeah. And right. so we needed a name. So, I mean, and we needed a name for, we needed a handle for a Twitter account. <laughs> um, so Funny. that's how, that's how Little Lobbyist was born. I want to zoom out for a second to where you were saying about the three points of the Affordable Care Act that particularly were, were mm -hmm. damaging or d for them to not exist would be damaging. I'm, I'm trying to play i'm not really trying to play devil's advocate i'm just trying to understand the full 360 of this and i i think you'll have better perspective than anyone but is there any viable argument for say you know re repealing like lifetime limits right or is there any is there is there any like sense in it where the side that's trying to mm -hmm. uh you know that's that cares about pre-existing conditions that's trying to say no 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 like if you have a pre-existing condition you cannot be covered is there any sense to it <laughs> like is there anybody is do you understand what i'm i'm asking i'm trying to just see it holistically yeah. if it's possible I think either that or it's just a terrible right. thing and it might just be that but i'm just trying to figure so it out. if i understand your question correctly i have two answers and the first yes. one, on a personal note, my right. answer is no. I mean, you know, without that, yeah, my family yeah, yeah. would have been bankrupt or my daughter would not have survived. Um, so no. But the, the second answer that I have is the House repealed, voted to repeal the ACA with no replacement plan in place. Um, so at that time in 2017, it is all about repeal, repeal, repeal. There was no replacement plan, right? You know, so for the last eight years, we've heard repeal and replace. Well, what are they doing? You know, if this if this 
if the ACA is so terrible as they claim it is, it's so horrible and, and it's the worst law ever, uh, as they've been saying, well, what is the plan? You know, you can't just take something away that has helped people with nothing and say, hey, give us, give us a minute. We'll figure this out. No, that doesn't work. It doesn't work for millions of Americans who are relying on care right now. You can't leave them hanging. Yeah. So then what was the result of showing up that first day and then coming back and mm-hmm. coming back? Like what? What change or what movement have you seen as a result of your lobbying efforts? So, well, in July, uh, the Senate, you know, uh, uh, right. oh my gosh, I'm just getting uh, emotional just thinking about it. Uh, we all remember in July, late July, yeah. you know, the three votes, uh, Collins, Murkowski, and McCain. Um, and with those three votes, we saved health care for millions of Americans. Um, repeal efforts were defeated. And I think that was the first major win. It was huge. It really was huge. And, and being new to the space, to advocacy, I had spoken to so many others who had been doing this work for years and years and years. And every single one of them told me on inauguration day, they were like, ACA is dead. Like, healthcare will be repealed. Like, it, there was no doubt in their minds that this was over. And so for that July vote um, to come through the way that it did and, you know, to have played a small role in that was significant. Um, And it was really about all the people speaking up. You know, it wasn't just us, obviously, but people showed up across the country. People came to Washington, D.C. You know, National Adapt was there. You saw images of their members in wheelchairs, you know, doing the sit-ins. You saw Center for Popular Democracy, you know, uh, hosting civil disobedience efforts. You saw everybody show up. Um, Really the power of the people who who made this happen. Yeah, I think that's what's shocking to people about the idea of lobbying because lobbying can have just like a mm-hmm. it can be a dirty word and people just have especially people that are like outside of the the beltway area that <laughs> just hear about just the negative views of lobbyists but it's really incredible what mm-hmm. somebody showing up and knocking on the door of an office and right. like literally yes. doing that <laughs> like you show up and you knock on the door and you can mm-hmm. talk to a senator and it can affect actual change for millions of people both in the Mm -hmm. u.s and around the globe um how has it felt being i mean obviously you said like Mm -hmm. you know it starts to get emotional but what has it done for you and for your daughter to know that because you came back and you came back again because you keep knocking on the door like real change happened Mm -hmm. it's really empowering i mean it's incredible. And I, you know, living yeah. in the DC area, the word lobbyist means and, and what that conjures up for so many people. And, and like I right. mentioned previously, you know, we didn't spend a moment's thought on, on naming our group and maybe we should have. Uh, but in a way, I see little lobbyists <laughs> as reclaiming that, you know, the, the, the reason we don't like lobbyists is because it's been about money and power. You know, when we think about lobbyists, it's, you know, that's what we think of. We think about rich, wealthy uh, lobbying firms influencing politicians. Well, at the core of lobbying is someone who's interested in a cause trying to speak to their elected officials and help them understand the issue. And so in terms of lobbying, like the way that I see it is me coming into these offices and 
explaining how a certain policy has an effect on the day-to-day -day life of someone like me, you know, that's the power. That's the power that, that we need to reclaim. I don't have thousands and millions of dollars to come in and lobby <laughs> a senator, uh, but I have my stories and I have the stories of families like mine. And that is just as powerful and hopefully more powerful. Yeah, it is because the other, the people that are lobbying mm -hmm. against what you're doing, they do have, right, they have a massive amount of uh, really an endless supply of, of money and they use that money to buy influence. Is that accurate? Yes. I mean, that's, that's my understanding of how things work in DC. And I remember speaking to somebody <laughs> right. yeah, and, yeah. and they, um, he asked me how, how we were able to gain access to the senators you know he had just come from this meeting with the senator and um and he said oh yeah she mentioned your name and I, you know how did you build this relationship you know it takes years and years for people to build relationships with with elected officials and he kind of gave me this sort of like lobbying one-on-one -on -one and how like if you want to influence change this is what you do you you write up policy papers you have a position paper you hire a lobbying firm you you schmooze and you get to know the people who have access to those elected and anyway this is a 10-step thing you know 10-step <laughs> process to getting yeah, access yeah. and often involving money and power and who you know and i said i just i showed up i i i <laughs> you know i just literally showed up um and yeah, yeah. that's why i like telling this story because you can do this back home and sometimes i think you can have a greater influence yeah. going up showing up at your state capitol house you know meeting with your elected officials when they are back home uh writing op-eds and letters to the editor in your local newspaper because those are the actual papers that that your elected officials will read you know i don't think they're reading the you know new york times and washington post the national papers but they'll read the local paper um and right. if they are doing events and you know doing town halls you know that's a great opportunity to show up and 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 make yourself heard yeah how do people that don't live within a stone's throw of mm -hmm. dc how does someone in portland show up mm -hmm. well they can show up locally um if they're able to do so and, you know and i know for our families our families with right. complex medical needs and disabilities you know so many of us um have limited time or spend so much time in the hospital so i understand that you know just showing up is is difficult um making phone calls, calling your your elected officials, um, writing them letters, having a surrogate show up on your behalf, um, using social media. You know, there's lots of yeah. ways to be involved. And one of the things we say to everybody is that there is there's a place for everybody in this movement. You know, there's a there's room and there's a there's a way for everyone to advocate and you need to find what works best for you do you have people on both sides of the aisle um because this is like one of the tentpole partisan issues of our uh of our modern age um or or is it is is yours not a, are the are your organizations not at all bipartisan our little lobbyist is nonpartisan. we have families from every you know political persuasion um let's be clear that healthcare is not and should not be a partisan issue no you're right you're totally right like in theory it should not be but in reality it is 
it has turned it has devolved to that. But yes, I understand what you're saying. And in, in a utopian, we, we should be right. All sides of the aisle should be caring yes. deeply about what's best for, you know, people's people's needs. So we look at the record, you know, so for the 2018 midterms, there were a few elected officials that we targeted that we looked at. We said, look how they voted when the time came to stand up for our families. And, you know, they didn't. Right. Uh, so, you know, we, di we didn't set out to endorse anyone explicitly, but we wanted people to be informed voters. Right. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of these members were putting out campaign ads talking about how they were committed to protecting pre-existing conditions. And yet they voted time and time and time again to repeal the very law that protected pre-existing conditions. So we just message on that. We let the record speak for itself. Um, as yeah. you know, it was, it was hard because at the end of the day, it, it did look very partisan, right? It did, you know, the members who did vote against our children were all of one political right. party. Um, but again, the issue is not partisan. Uh, you know, how, how easy is, it? you know, healthcare, healthcare for children, how easy is that <laughs> to get behind? And yet that's not what we saw uh, with the congressional record. A lot of people listening to this, I would uh, imagine, um, don't have a real personal sense that something is wrong with healthcare. Like, like, like we would know it's in the news. We know there's a lot of conversation around it, but when it mm -hmm. comes to how it actually affects you know, a, a majority of listeners day to day, they have their insurance, they pay their $20 co copay when they get a cold. And that's it. Um, but that is really not the case for for many Americans. Uh, I, I'm curious if you can mm -hmm. broaden even just outside of, um, you know, children with complex and adults with complex medical needs. What what does it mean more broadly to be able to have uh, to be able to have a, a, a healthcare system that is working and serving all people. Yeah, I think if you had asked me that question five years ago, I would have had maybe a different answer. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we we cannot predict the future. We cannot. Right. Yeah. Uh, we don't know when we might need health care, for example. Um, I have an older child who is as healthy as they come, knock on wood. And then I had a second child who required significant medical care, you know, so I didn't know that. I didn't anticipate that. So a healthcare system that works is a healthcare system that is there for us when we need it. Um, and the way that's played out for me is I was able to be in the hospital with mm -hmm. focusing on her. I wasn't worried about paying my medical bills because I knew that I had good health insurance that covered whatever it was that she needed. Um, and so that is something that I think very few people realize until mm -hmm. they are faced with that reality or unfortunately until it's too late, until they get into a car accident, until they are diagnosed with cancer, until you know something happens to them or their families, they have no idea how expensive healthcare is. And of course the, the cost of healthcare is a whole separate conversation. Um, but they don't really know. And so you know, when we look at proposals like short-term limited duration plans that this administration has proposed, uh, which are also known as junk plans, you know, and what that says is, you know, you can buy this healthcare plan 
um, it's cost effective. Um, it's cheaper. And if you're healthy, you can just buy this because you don't need all that other stuff. And that sounds great to someone who is healthy and doesn't have a whole lot of money or doesn't have a whole lot of money that they want to spend on healthcare, right? That sounds great. Why would you pay for something that you don't need right now? Well, because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know what's going right. to happen next week. And you know, what diagnosis you, you might be facing. And so the reason that these junk plans are so cost effective is because they don't cover anything. So by the time that you come to realize you need it, it's not there for you. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're you're either then facing bankruptcy to get the care you need mm. or worse. Um, and the last question, and we ask this to all of the guests, and I, I think we ask it, uh, well, the question is, how how do you define activist? Mm-hmm. And we, act, we ask it first because I think everybody's activism, they kind of enter it from a different spot. Uh, and mm-hmm. also just because activism is just a big loaded word. And so mm-hmm. um, I, I'm curious, as you think of the word activist, and as people consider you an activist, how do you how do you define that in your own mind? Yeah, it's it is a very big word, isn't it? Uh, I yes, and I agree. I think it means different things for different people, and there is a place for everybody uh, to practice their own activism. And so, what it's meant for me, and it's it's still evolving, to be completely honest. But what it's meant for me is fighting for something that is bigger than yourself. You know, so I got into this, I, I, and I often call myself an accidental activist, uh, but I got into this because of my personal circumstance, obviously, right? You know, I have a child with, with medical needs, and and mm. from the day she was born, I was fighting for her. I was fighting for, say, specific things, like accommodations. I was fighting for certain specific benefit. I was fighting for, you know, certain prescription drugs to be covered by insurance. I was cover I was fighting for certain benefits, fighting for her to get Medicaid, to, you know, to get the wheelchair she needs. So my early advocacy and activism were very specific. Um, they were for concrete things and that's kind of how my brain works sometimes. Uh, but as it's evolved, you know, I see myself now as an activist, activist that's fighting for quality right. of life. So it's no longer right. about the specific thing, but it's about her future and it's about inclusion, community inclusion. You know, she's a disabled child and I want her community mm-hmm. and the world around her to be you know, to be welcoming and inclusive and to be accessible and not just for her, but for all of her friends. Um, and so in, in through those lens, I see this work is, you know, way bigger than I am, <laughs> way bigger than Ziomara and a lot longer, <laughs> you know, there's a lot more work to do, uh, but it's really about mm-hmm. the, the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I lied. I, I lied. I have one more question. That's okay. <laughs> um, I, um, pra- I just want to know practically, what can people do, mm-hmm. people who have children with complex medical needs and people that don't, maybe they don't have kids at all, right? What can people do to take a next step in supporting specifically the work that you're doing with little lobbyists? Because I'm just aware that people are hearing this and their bell is rung and they're like, okay, I got to help. What can they do? Just practically, what can they do now? I hope I have rung a lot of bells. Um, I, I, you know, I, again, you know, I meet people where they are. Um, So I tell everyone, find your voice, find your comfort zone and, and, and dare to 
go beyond that, but find out where you are and start there. You know, and I say that because I've had families reach out and they see me on TV or they see me at a big rally and they say, I want to help, but I, I don't want to speak. I don't do public speaking. <laughs> I don't, I don't want right. to get in front of a crowd and speak. I'm like, well, you don't have to do that. Uh, what, what right. do you want to do? And then that conversation then leads to more, you know, Oh, I find out there are good writers. I'm like, Oh, let's talk about writing. Like, would you be interested in writing an op-ed or a letter to the editor? Um, yes. You know, we have some families who, because of their personal situations or their preferences, they, they, can't be public, you know, uh, or don't want to be public. So we find ways for them to help behind the scenes. Um, we, there are families who have uh, professional skills and talents that they can lend to this. You know, one of my favorite stories is mm-hmm. Laura Hatcher. And she reached out to me early on and she wanted to come and join us on the Hill. And, and I said, yes, we're going to go on this day. And, and she was busy that day. So she sent her husband and her son, but later that week, she sent me an email mm-hmm. and it came with an attachment. And so I opened it and I said, well, what's this? And she said, it's a logo. And I said, a logo for what? She said, for a little obvious, you know, and Laura is a graphic designer by trade, a very talented one. And so if you follow us on social media, you will see the little obvious logo and infographics and a bunch of branding. And that's all because of Laura. So, you know, there's so many different ways to contribute and support causes that you believe in. So start with where you are, start with your talent, start with what you're comfortable with, start with what you already know. Um, there is no one right way to do this. Um, there's lots and lots of ways. There's, you know, there's, there's again, but there's room for everybody in this movement. And so whatever your trade is, you know, I think just step into it. Um, so that's how a lot of families have, have been able to support us. They, they help out with writing, they help, they show up like Laura, they, they lend their talents. They help us organize behind the scenes. Um, we, you know, they help us spread the word. Um, we, we do, we are completely volunteer run. So a lot of financial support has, has helped our families, uh, be able to travel to DC and do this work. Um, they help offset some of the out-of-pocket expenses that we have. Um, I think, you know, there's just, there are endless ways to make your voice heard and be part of this movement. Well, there is a huge amount to process from that conversation, but I know that some of the things I'm thinking about are both how Elena responded to the needs of Xiomara and also realizing the needs that children all around the country have who have complex medical needs. And I just so appreciated that she saw that there needed to be some help from the government and she didn't just sit and wait and hope but she showed up and then she showed up again and then she showed up again and then she co-created little lobbyists i hope that that is an inspiration for all of us to show up and make our voices known and heard i also appreciate just what she brought to our attention about so many families and what they need and what healthcare means to them and what it can mean if they don't have healthcare. With all of the gigantic conversation that happens and will continue to happen throughout this election season with healthcare, it is really, really important to remember children with complex medical needs and to remember Xiomara's story. If you want to learn more about Little Lobbyists, their website is littlelobbyists.org and that will direct you to all of their social media. 
Of course, the conversation that has started here will continue over on our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of them are New Activist Is, one word, New Activist Is. And a huge thank you to Propaganda, who scored today's episode. His tour dates, merch, music, everything can be found at humblebeast.com. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Elena Hung and my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends.